just scoot this up a little bit. All right, good morning. <clears throat> uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We're actually going to be looking at a little bit of Hebrews 3 and a little bit of Hebrews chapter 4 this morning for Sunday school. I don't have a Father's Day joke, but I do have a Mother's Day joke, so bear, bear with me, all right? All right. So Bob was in trouble again. He forgot Mother's Day. Totally forgot it. So his wife was really angry. She told him, tomorrow morning, I expect to find a gift in the driveway that goes from zero to 200 in six seconds or better. And it had better be there. The next morning, he got up early, left for work. When his wife woke up, she looked out the window, and sure enough, there was a box uh, gift-wrapped in the middle of the driveway. Confused, the wife put on a robe and ran out to the driveway, brought the box back into the house. She opened it and found a, bra a brand new bathroom scale. Bob has been missing since Friday. <laughs> so. Zero to 200. That, I guess that's not the zero to 200 that she was anticipating. So, uh, <clears throat> a few summers ago, I, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever heard of Audible. Audible is a, uh, uh, a way to listen to books on, online, iTunes and Amazon and different things like that. So, <clears throat> typically, I, I try to look for a book to, to read through in the, the summertime. And there was a book that kept on recurring. Um, I, I didn't read the, the, the totality of the book or listen to it, I, I suppose. It was a book uh, called American Sniper. And the, the reason that I, I started looking into it is uh, uh, one of my students years ago was actually a Marine that had been uh, seriously injured uh, over in Iraq. And it caught my attention, and, and he had actually written a book as well. So. This one was recommended by, by Audible very high, so I started reading through it, and again, I didn't finish the book. Um, but there was a part of the book that amazed me, and I'm not a military guy. I, I only had a few folks in my, in my uh, family that were military, but the, the, the type of training that these men went through was incredible. He was a sniper, and his job was to protect uh, many of the troops uh, that were going into the different uh, you know, places to alleviate the pressure from the, the insurgents and so forth. But one of the parts of the book I just I, I thought was riveting, there were times in which it would take a full week for him to get into position. He would crawl a couple hundred yards and he would sit there for the rest of the day. Then he would do a little bit more and a little bit more, and he was very methodical in getting into position so that he was undetected, so that when he did get into position, he could do his job and, uh, and help the, the uh, threat of the insurgents and so forth. But the thing that caught my attention and the, the thing that I was thinking through in the book is, now that was obviously a positive side, military and, and things that are necessary in the military, but isn't Satan doing the same type of a thing? Incredibly subtle, incredibly patient. He will wait us out. 
and the preparedness for this individual to get ready for helping somebody uh, oftentimes could be reversed and, and the preparedness that we need to have against Satan and the attacks of Satan and the, and the threats of temptation and so forth, we have to have the same type of vigilance uh, going about that. And I think that the book of Hebrews is a huge help for our perspective on that. The, the book of Hebrews is an interesting book, and I'm, I'm certain that you've read through it and wrestled through some of the, the passages that are there. But when you look at the book of Hebrews, the, the, the call of this book is for Christians to persevere, to keep on going, to endure until the end, to make sure that their preparedness is there so that when attacks come, and they will come, that they would be ready to endure that, that attack. So throughout the book, the way that it's structured, and if anybody knows the author of this book, let me know afterwards. It's a mystery for a lot of people. Some people think that it's Paul and a lot of different uh, ideas that are there. But regardless, this author understood the attacks that Jewish Christians were going through in the early, in the early church. And the, the challenge is for them, and it's a basic challenge, do not return back to the Mosaic system. Keep on following after Christ. If you turn back to the Mosaic system and start uh, thinking that salvation is following the law of Moses, then you actually have turned your back on Jesus and the finished work that he has accomplished on the cross. So the, the charge to the Jewish Christians was, was clear to them, but it was in a context of suffering. It was in a, a context of persecution. And oftentimes, and when you, when you read through many of these uh, New Testament books where there's a challenge to Christians to keep on going, the persecution that they were suffering was, was intense. And oftentimes, if a person turned back to the Mosaic system, they weren't persecuted any longer. There was no more threat. Why? Because the Jews, having attacked Christ, having attacked his apostles, and having attacked his church, were a threat to biblical Christianity, of course, because biblical Christianity was a threat to their system. So oftentimes, a professing Christian, if they turned back to following the law and the sacrifices, that they were no longer a threat to them, and they were not persecuted. But the author is encouraging these Christians, these Jewish Christians, who were suffering, not to turn back, to persevere, to keep on going. There's really five warning passages inside of the book of Hebrews. Let me just list these off for you. We're going to focus on one this morning. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 3, verse 7 through 4.13. Chapter 5 and chapter 6, a portion of chapter 10, and then a portion of chapter 12. All of those serve as warning passages. Now, what good are warning passages? For them, the warning passage was clear. Don't turn back to the Mosaic system. But you say, well, I'm not a Jew. I'm not living under that type of persecution in Palestine where it was very heavy. How does something like that apply to me? What, what types of things would I get out of uh, you know, portions of scripture like this? And I think as a basic idea, Warning passages serve both sides. They serve unbelievers and they serve believers. 
Well, let me explain. How, how would a warning passage serve an unbeliever? The warning passage serves the unbeliever by warning them of the judgment to come. It's actually a piece of God's grace to them to say judgment is coming for not following after Christ, and the call is to repent. You say, well, what about the believer? How does a warning passage apply to me? Warning passages always apply to the believer by helping them to endure, by heeding the warnings. Uh, I, I suppose all of us have had this experience, either personally, that was me personally, and then others uh, telling a child, now the, the stovetop is hot, don't touch it. I was one of those kids, okay? Put my hand on it, yeah, it's hot, okay? You would, you would look at a child that did not heed warnings like that as there would be something wrong. If the child, you say, don't, don't touch it, it's hot, you just learn that it's hot, the child goes back the next day and does it again. And then the next day does it again. You would probably look at a child and say, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you heeding the warnings? Number one, I warned you. I'm trying to be helpful to you. I'm trying to help you through this. But also, the lesson wasn't learned by experience. And you would look at a child like that and say, what is going on? Are, are, are you not understanding that pain is pain? Well, the warnings for a Christian serve us to do this. We understand through that warning that I can't, I can't fall into this, this particular sin. It's God's grace to me. It's the means by which a believer looks and analyzes the situation and says, thank you for the warning. I'm not going to do that. So a warning actually serves both different sides, one to repent and one to be on guard, to be warned. Consider yourself warned. This is a bad thing for you. And if the person learns that lesson, then they will actually persevere. They'll actually endure to the end in the midst of that. So <clears throat> inside of this passage, I'm not going to go through the, the fullness of the passage just because of time's sake. We wouldn't have time to, to go verse by verse. But what I'd like to do is start off, I'm going to start reading in Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. <clears throat> the author says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me in the days and trial of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Throughout this passage, you see that recurring phrase, hold fast. Hold fast. You see it in, in chapter 3 and verse 6. It says, hold fast our confidence. Chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, if we hold fast. And then also you see it again in chapter 4 and verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. So what's the primary theme in this warning passage? Hold fast. Keep going. Keep enduring. 
don't give up. Now, as we look at this, <clears throat> and we, we try to see the similarities between us in our context and those who are struggling back in their context, although I don't know what it's like to be threatened with my life for biblical Christianity. I don't know what that's like. I do know this. There are parts of the world where they face that often. But I do know that even though my context is different, it doesn't take long to understand that there's a lot of people who profess Christ that don't follow him any longer. They gave up. They stopped. They, if you were to look at, at their life, and many of them, if you, if you ask them, so, you know, why, why don't you come to church any longer? Or, you know, what, what happened? Usually, uh, not everybody, but most people will say, well, such and such happened, and I just couldn't, I didn't know how to deal with that. Uh, something typically negative or bad or something like that. So that instead of their focus being upon Christ, and following after him, even in the midst of turmoil or persecution or trial or, or whatever, somehow they got their focus off of Christ. Don't know exactly how that happens for everybody. I know sometimes it happens with loss. Somebody loses somebody. And their focus is on the grief and on the despair of that, which is natural. I would never say that those things are not natural. But as soon as the eyes go off of Jesus and start to focus too much on that trial or on that situation for a long period of time, it's easy for a person to fall away, to focus too much on that one thing. I think a simple illustration is that of Peter. He didn't sink until he did what? Until he took his eyes off of Christ and started looking at the waves. The, the record is there for us to understand that this idea of faith is very important, an enduring faith, a, a, a faith that, that lasts through the trials of life. And an illustration like that, where, where Jesus calls Peter to come out to him, and as soon as his eyes left Christ, that's when he started to struggle. That's when he started to sink. And I think the same thing oftentimes happens. So we, we see here in the book of Hebrews a consistent warning. Hold fast to Christ. Don't give up. Don't, don't stop believing. Don't, don't quit having faith inside of that. So that is the, really the belief system that all of us have to have is to continue to persevere, to be on guard, to keep on going. But also we see the cause for this command. So why is, why is this command happening to us? Well, I read the passage and I, I teach at uh, Inner City Baptist High School. I've been there for a number of years um, and have taught kids the Old Testament. I teach eighth graders Old Testament uh, survey. And we go a lot through the Pentateuch. We go through a, a lot with the, the, the travels of the children of Israel out of Egypt into the Promised Land, uh, going into Joshua. I teach the book of Judges. And if anybody, any Christian, reads the book of Judges and doesn't walk away from that going, what is wrong with you people? You've got all of the promises of God. God was faithful to those promises through Joshua, through, through the incredible nature of the miraculous that God did. Jericho alone. Walk around the city. The walls are going to fall and you're going to take the city. 
how, how people could not look at that and observe is just beyond a person who, who understands the work of God. I, I ask my kids often, if, you, if there was a price tag on seeing a miracle like Jericho, how much would you pay? I'd pay a lot. That would be the craziest thing ever. I mean, so let me get this straight. So Joshua, we're going to walk around the city and on the last day, we're going to walk around it seven times, blow a trumpet. The walls will literally fall down and the enemies are going to be so freaked out that they're easy. They're easy prey. I would sign up for that. I would sign up for the, the Red Sea being split. I mean, all the different things, even, even the, the manna incident where the people started to complain about the manna. I don't know that I would ever get over something like that. You walk out of your tent and the, I mean, the ground is covered with bread every day without fail. And the, the people, the ultimate problem with the people of Israel is that they didn't genuinely believe these promises. Their heart was not changed. Now, they benefited from the promises. They saw them. They benefited from them and so forth. But if, if a person doesn't, doesn't change in the midst of the, the things that God is doing and a trust and a faith in God permeates the heart, then it doesn't matter what God does. It doesn't matter what anybody does. They're not going to believe. And that's really the illustration that, that is given here. The warning to them... And the warning to us, verse 8 says, Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Now, how long did they struggle with a lack of belief in God? It says here in the text, it says for 40 years. And they saw my works for 40 years. After the 40 years of seeing the incredible miracles of God, you would think that the people would be like, Oh, this is real. This is what God wants, and I'm going to follow him. But what the children of Israel did is at every turn, their hearts were hardened by it. And see, that's what happens oftentimes with warnings of God. Again, the warning hits the unbeliever, and the warning is to repent. But what, what ends up happening with the unbeliever? It just hardens them. It just makes them more rebellious. It's the kid after the fourth warning of don't touch the, the stove. They keep on touching it. You're like, stop. I mean, after a while, you only have two hands. You know, how much more does it take? Well, with the children of Israel, it took a lot. You know, some of the, some of the catastrophes of the book of Numbers, the story of their unbelieving rebellion against God and the amount of people that were, that were killed because of because of their outright rebellion against God, should have woken them up. But they were stubborn, and they would not turn. But to, those, but to those who had faith, genuine faith, what did those warnings do? They actually led to a firm belief. The, the story that I read through, and the parallel is in John chapter 3, because Jesus says, as, as the, the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That must have been quite the scene. So there's snakes everywhere, and I don't know about you, I'm not a big fan of snakes. Even gardener snakes freak me out. So there's snakes everywhere, they're biting people. This is real, this is happening, this is going on right now. 
what's the remedy, Moses? Because everybody obviously runs to Moses, help us, save us. So God tells him, make a bronze serpent and hold it up. Okay, what do we need to do? I mean, there's do we do we get some fire? Do we pour some, you know, something on it and burn these things? No, just do this. Just look at it. Look at the serpent. No, 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 Moses, seriously. What do you want us to do? I'm going to make a serpent. I'm going to hold it up. And as soon as you look at it, you're saved. No, it can't be that easy. But that's what Jesus said. As the serpent was lifted up in, in the wilderness, and that's what Moses told the people, as soon as you look at it, you'll be saved. You won't die. How would somebody not just look at it? How could that happen? Because their unbelief and their, in a sense, even, even back at that point, their self-righteousness, they thought that they could handle it themselves. When the lesson was, no, it's God's grace. It's trusting in what God said that is going to rescue you. It always has and it always will. See, God always offers grace through what he's told us. If I listen to it, it's God's means by which I grow. I, I have faith. My faith grows. And it's simplistic in the sense that, okay, so God said do this. Okay, I'm going to do that. And then the people were saved. But that's not what happened here for 40 years. It says there, they always go astray in their heart. Their hearts would not believe. They would not trust in what God had said. So when we look at this type of a thing and you say, well, why, why didn't they do this? Look over at Hebrews chapter 4 just for a moment in, in verses 1 and 2. I think one of the answers to why they did not listen is found here. It says, therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of enduring his rest, any one of you should come short or seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. It's pretty simplistic. They heard the same word that we're hearing. Why didn't they believe it? Because they did not couple it with faith. They did not bring their understanding of what God was doing and simply believe it. And that was their, that was their biggest problem. God spoke and they consistently had deaf ears. I'll give you an example, something that uh, occurs so much in the Gospels that it catches anybody's attention. How many times, and I, I challenged my students at one point to count up the amount of times throughout the Gospels that Jesus said this. He said this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now why would Jesus say that, and, and what does it have to do with his teaching to them? Because the children of Israel had taken their hands and they had covered their ears. We're not listening. But Jesus said, those who do listen will have life. They will have eternal life. So here, the, the illustration of the children of Israel is there for us to learn a lesson. They did not believe what God said and believe it to the point where they actually obeyed it. Because faith and obedience are combined. Okay. So in the passage, we're commanded to persevere. We're commanded to endure until the end. Now, the question then comes, okay, so how do I do that? How do I keep on going? Uh, this was uh, 
I guess last fall, I was finishing up my new, I try to read the New Testament through every year. I try to just cultivate that and be familiar with the New Testament. So it was, it was later on in the, in the semester, it was probably around October, and I was reading through Hebrews chapter 4, and I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this, where you're reading the Bible, you've read a passage probably 10, 15, 20 times, and you're reading it, and then the light goes on, and you're like, now I understand why he's saying this. Because all of us have memorized these, these uh, verses. <clears throat> For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. I learned that back in my Iwana days back at First of Troy. I, I knew it. I passed the section. Got it. But I had never really made a connection. Okay, so what does the word of God and praying to the faithful high priest have to do with this command to hold fast and to endure? It's because that's how we do it. You hold fast and you endure through the end, to the end by obeying God's word and having it have an effect in our lives and by seeking God out in prayer. It really is that simplistic. Why? Because when we look at the word of God and we look at what Jesus taught us in praying to him, it's a lesson on endurance. So what is, the, what is, in a sense, the, the fuel for me to keep on going? How do I have the strength? How do I have the desire to keep on going the way that I should? Well, the author of Hebrews answers that. Let's look down at, uh, at this section. I'm going to read verses 11, chapter 4, verses 11 and following. It says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now, that first word in verse 12 is an interesting one. It's translated in the English the word for, but you could easily translate that word because. So let's, let's use the word because. Because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Since we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now this is a loaded passage. We're going to try to break it down as, as best that we can and just look at some of the highlights of, of these two things. So first, he says here <clears throat> to follow that, don't follow that same level of disobedience. Why? Because the word of God has an, an active effect on our lives if we follow it. If we're saturated with it. So it says here, <clears throat> that the character of the Word of God is that it's living and active. You say, well, what does that mean, that it's living and active? <clears throat> um, all of us have had the experience, being in Christ, of having conviction. Now, it says, if you go back to chapter 3 and verse 7, why is there conviction based upon the Word of God? Because it says, just as the Holy Spirit says... See, the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and applies it to our hearts. If we have the Spirit of God in us, 
the one who authored it is going to use it and is going to point out very specific things in our life that I'm not doing. Well, how do I know that? Because it says that it knows me better than I know myself. You know, oftentimes, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever had this occasion uh, in, your, in your life uh, or said this question to yourself, why did I just do that? Why did I just think that? You know, what is, what is wrong with me that I would think a thought like that or do that particular activity? Well, join the club. I think I get my membership card punched on that question just about every single day because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, who can know it? Well, I don't. I don't know my own heart, but the Word of God does. And see, the Word of God, as it's been faithfully preached to us, as it's faithfully being read and interacted with, the Holy Spirit, who is the author of that, takes that and applies it to my heart. There's nowhere to run and hide. The Word of God is abundantly clear. The, the, the doctrine of the clarity of the Scriptures is an interesting one. Have you ever noticed this before, that uh, unbelievers use the Word of God as well? Right now, probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands of churches that don't actually believe this fully, think that there's errors in it and different things like that, what do they do on a Sunday morning? They're still using the Word of God in some way, in some form. You say, well, how can they do that? You would think that the Word of God to an unbeliever is completely closed. They don't get any part of it. No, they, they actually get quite a bit of it. They understand, I mean, anybody picking up the Bible, even reading it as literature, can understand basic things. Okay, there was a talking snake, and there was a woman, and there was a man, and they, they did something wrong, and there was a curse that was brought. You can't read the scriptures and not see that. It's clear. The message is clear. And you say, well, why don't they accept it? Because they don't heed the voice of the Holy Spirit. They don't listen to his voice. But the word of God to a Christian, heeding the warnings, I do listen to the word of God. Now, granted, sometimes it takes us a while to wake up. Sometimes it takes... Uh, years to be just drilled on a certain point of the Word of God until finally, after maybe 10 years, you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that anymore. Or maybe, maybe I should change in this way. Why? Because the conviction of the Holy Spirit, although we want it to be instantaneous and we want to be perfect right now, we are in a process. That's what endurance is. It's a process. Um, Years, this was years ago, a friend of mine, uh, <clears throat> Jacob, knows him pretty well. We all went to school together. Uh, T.J. Claprich, uh, he's a pastor down in uh, Winter Garden, Florida, and we, we started working out together. Uh, we were going to get, uh, you know, we're in college, and we're going to get, you know, we're going to get huge. And so we go into the gym uh, down at Bob Jones. They had just built the Fremont Fitness Center. It was a beautiful facility. It's still there. My, my son is down there right now. And, I walked inside and it brought back a lot of memories when we were down there a few weeks ago. And I thought, man, first time I, I got onto a bench, <clears throat> I thought, you know, and most guys, arrogant, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of uh, ego, they get on, there's like, I'll oh, put 150, 200 pounds on there, I'll crank it out. I couldn't even get 95 pounds up 10 times. 
You want to talk about a 10-pound weakling. That, that was me. So I was embarrassed. There's guys everywhere waiting for the bench, and they're watching, you know, frail little Jeremy <laughs> trying, to, trying to lift up 95 pounds. But I didn't give up. I kept on going. TJ, it, I mean, TJ was just an animal. He was just one of those guys that if you're going to have a workout partner, you want somebody that's, like, fully dedicated to it. So he's pushing me. We would do all the craziest stuff, you know, trying to, trying to get each other stronger and that type of a deal. But I tell you what, if I had given up that first day because of being embarrassed, I wouldn't have been able to build up, you know, to a certain weight. I had a goal weight that I wanted to be able to do and, and lift and, and that type of a thing. Why? Because endurance takes time. And that's, that's how it is with the Word of God. How can, how can a 55-year-old or a 65-year-old still be convicted by the Word of God that they knew the verses back when they were 25 when they got saved? Because the Word of God is progressive and the Holy Spirit is using that Word and opening us up. I mean, it's, it's pretty, in a sense, it's graphic language, but it's good language for us because it opens us up really to the deepest part of our being. It doesn't get any deeper than what it says here. Division of soul and spirit to the joints and the marrow. That's pretty deep. And the picture is there to help us that it knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It exposes them. It doesn't let us run away from them. It shows us exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. And the ultimate answer is because I'm a sinner. And I need to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God is giving me insight into the Word of God. There is no creature hidden, verse 13, from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of whom we have to do. It actually has an imagery of the judgment seat of Christ. Now, <clears throat> I've heard it preached before that we're going to be in heaven, standing before Christ, and this is your life is showing in front of everybody and things like that. I don't really think that that's the case. Uh, for everybody to see this is my life. But I tell you what, there is going to be a Savior that's there that knows every detail of my heart. <clears throat> if he could read the minds of his disciples, is there any secret when I stand before Christ? So the imagery there is of, of the judgment. <clears throat> and see what the Word of God does currently for us is it judges us. It knows the intentions of our hearts. It knows what's going on in our innermost being for correction, not just to make us feel bad. It's there to correct us, to help us. Why? Because God's means to help us to endure is through the Word of God as we heed it and listen to its author, the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, we see <clears throat> that we also have a great high priest that we are to hold fast our confession, our confession verse 14, why? Because in verse 16 it says, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So the Bible, the reading of the scriptures actually opens me up to my problems. It shows me how to change. But that's not the final court of appeal. I've got one that knows exactly what I'm going through, the sins that I struggle with, the temptations that I face. And I can go to him directly to do what? To find grace in times of need. Now, the scriptures are clear. Luke records it, Mark records a portion of it, and Matthew records a portion of it. Jesus going into the wilderness. Well, you say, it's impossible to be tempted the same way that I am. Jesus didn't have a spouse. He wasn't tempted to get angry with a spouse. He, he didn't have an employer. 
Okay, have you ever been in fr frustrated with your employer from time to time? You get upset about a new policy or different things like that. Well, Jesus never felt that. He, did, he didn't work for anybody. He was kind of, kind of a self-employed guy. So how could he understand my temptations to be frustrated with my spouse or my boss or my children? He didn't have any kids. Okay? What, what we see here, it says, <clears throat> verse 15, we have a high priest who, it says, cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, uh, but was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. What does that mean? When you, when you trace through Luke, uh, Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, you understand that Jesus was tempted by Satan in very specific ways. And it's more, in a sense, categorical. Jesus was tempted the same way that you and I are, through the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the arrogant, boastful pride of life. Because in each of the temptations that he faced, that's what was being exposed, the things that he saw, the things that were, in a sense, pleasurable, like eating. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. Turn the, this, these stones into bread. The arrogance of being elevated to a position of loftiness. Cast yourself down and your angels will lift you up. It's a millennial illustration of the king being saved by, by the angelic host. Although he was not tempted in the same way, uh, uh, occasion, okay, I'm getting upset with my spouse about this or my children did this. Certainly, at times, have you ever been embarrassed by your kids? How is that not pride? You know, I, I struggled with this. Um, my daughter is, uh, she's going to be going into the seventh grade, so she just finished up Awana. And the lofty goal for Awana is what? The Timothy Award. That's the, the, the best of the best. You finished all your books and different things like that. Well, she didn't get the Timothy Award. And I'm sitting there looking at a pamphlet. Okay, and I'm looking at my daughter. She's the last one through. She didn't get the Timothy Award. You know what the thought that hit my mind was? Oh, if we had only worked a little bit harder to get that one award, then she would be going up to get the, I, I forget what it is, like this glass trophy or something like that. And I'm like, I'm sitting there in the, in the pew, it's the Awana Awards Assembly going, why are you so arrogant? It's not about getting an award. Isn't it about learning God's word, hiding it in your heart so that you will not sin against God? Because it's easy to look at the, the occasions of life and be tempted to be prideful or be tempted to look on things that we ought not to or, or whatever the case might be. And Jesus understands that. Now, what's the difference between the two? I'll start wrapping things up. You say, well, my temptations are pretty intense. Okay, Jesus' weren't. He was perfect. Okay, I want you to think something through just for a moment. When I'm tempted to do something, how long is the temptation for most of us? Seconds. <laughs> I mean, tempted to be proud. I have the thought. I just, I just buckled to the temptation. Jesus never buckled. For 40 days, he never buckled to the temptation. You think, well, my, my temptations are so intense. I, I, I'm so tempted to get upset about this particular situation. You know how patient Jesus was with those disciples? I mean, now, did Jesus ever rebuke them out of righteous anger? Of course. But his was righteous anger. You and I just get really ticked off about stuff. Somebody does something, I get mad, I respond. I lash out with my words or, 
you know, with whatever. Jesus never did that. His was controlled, his was on point, and helpful to Peter. Now, I've never been called Satan by somebody. That would probably get my attention. The Son of God, you know, calling me, get behind me, Satan. But Jesus was never out of control. My anger's out of control. I'm tempted to, to, to lash out. See, Jesus, in all of the earthly temptations that he faced because he was a, a man, he understands those, and he understands them so well that when I come to him for help, he can help. He understands the temptation and offers that to me. A lot of people buckle in their Christianity because of temptations that they face or because of situations that they can't resolve. And oftentimes they turn into themselves. When, you know what Jesus is telling us to do here? Turn to me. I'll help you. I know exactly what you're going through. To the point where it says here, we should have confidence draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's what people, that's what people so desperately need in their Christian walk. They need help to endure to the end. They need God's help through the word of God and through prayer, prayer to the Savior who fully understands what we're going through so that we'll continue, so that we'll continue to endure until the end. And as the passage says over and over again, so that we will hold fast our confession until the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture and what it teaches us concerning enduring to the end. I pray, Lord, that all of us would consider it, that we would be taught by it, Lord, and that you would continue to help us as we do struggle in this life to endure. I pray that the Word of God would be real to us, that prayer would be vibrant, Lord as we seek to, to follow after you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>